0: Corey and I have been discussing the restoration and what exactly was restored. We talk about the restoration quotes as what's happened in the church in the 1830s and the movement that came from that and the Book of Mormon coming forth. But it's nice and kind of interesting to just focus in on what exactly was restored and what has our message been. And so we continue on. Discussing what was restored, picking up today about a city called Zion and a man named Enoch, and how that has changed our outlook and our understanding of the gospel through the years. Enjoy. Welcome to Restored Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. Corey, how are you doing today in the heart of America in the midst of the COVID-19 tragedy that we have come to know it as hunkered down in our little houses and homes? How are you doing?
1: Yeah, doing well, and, you know, uh, the the news in our home is— Uh, well, most people listening probably didn't know this and the news is way past my, my wife was one of the statistics. She had the virus and uh, she's well over it. Her symptoms were really just mild for a kind of a weekend, not even enough to even warrant a test other than that. She had, she works in healthcare and they required it. And to our surprise, she was, um, carrying the virus. Um, but by the time she had had her first test, she had already been out doing the things she likes to do, running and everything else, and and um, was feeling fine. Uh, she never had a temperature over like ninety nine point six or anything. Um, I was symptom free the whole time, but it was um, three weeks before after four tests where she actually proved to be uh, negative. So the the virus lingered, but uh, we all seemed to do okay. And I and I know that you know not everyone can say that. It's been definitely hard times for people, but uh, thankful uh, that the Lord's allowing us to live another day
0: yeah that's interesting i I still I, I wish they would uh, allow you to be tested just because you're her spouse and yeah. I imagine some doctor would write a script for you to get a test just to see if if you did get it if you were contagious or if you not contagious but you if you did develop get, the antibodies develop the antibodies yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as you know, you two live in the same house you know mm-hmm. you're married you're in the same home and you haven't felt anything. No, nothing. I can even put yeah. my finger on. But like yeah. you said, you said March or your wife just had a scratchy throat and just a little bit elevated. Yeah, 10, nine, not nine, even over a hundred, which would have disqualified her from even entering the hospital. Exactly. Yeah, that's
1: all it was. She was achy for a couple days and mm-hmm. fever for one day that never exceeded a hundred. So
0: yeah. yeah. Well, Corey, we started our series on the restoration and what exactly was restored. You know, we're told in the scriptures that. The Book of Mormon uh, was going to um, restore some plain and precious truths that were taken from the gospel. The great abominable church was going to uh, maybe move remove some of those things. But we've kind of had a message, or maybe we've, maybe not everyone, but it seems like maybe our message through the years was we have the authoritative priesthood and we have the right to baptize that actually means something. And um, you know, we have the Book of Mormon, which really is the Word of God, and that's been our message. And yet, as you pointed out, a scripture in the Book of Mormon, it says, make these things known unto the children of men. And what were these things? It wasn't that we have the authority and that priesthood authority was restored, although that's that's all important. We don't want to diminish that. but we do want to make sure that the message and the plainness that was brought back, gets to the people because that's the thing that has the power to change their hearts. It's the words of Christ that we restored, not that we have the words of Christ. Exactly. It's, <laughs> the, it's the
1: difference between telling someone I have a chainsaw and actually using the chainsaw yeah, to cut down I love the that. trees. Right? You right? made
0: that example, right? right? If, yeah. you, if you restored this beautiful uh, uh, 74 Nova to all of its glory, which I used to have, uh, oh, all of its no. glory from the original a uh, car and that you never turned the key on and took anybody for a drive. It just sat in your front yard, you know, who's just going to rust, and, and it has no purpose.
1: Yeah, exactly. But we've...
0: We've been going around, maybe telling everybody that about that nice car and that process of restoration without ever taking them for a drive, maybe, or letting them experience the joy that we have from it. You know, yeah, exactly. That's
1: a good word the joy that we have from it, because there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of answers Mm -hmm. that I don't even think we in the restoration have been conditioned to put our finger on to know no, this is joy and this is, this is, um, this is firm foundation. Right.
0: Know. We talked about that question that always comes up in Christ, in Christian dialogue when maybe an atheist approaches you and like, oh, yeah, well, how can you believe in a God that allows all of these bad things to happen? And we said, you know, the Book of Mormon answers that. How does a, a God allow good things to happen or bad things to happen to good people? There's even books that have been written by that name. The Book of Mormon has that answer. And, but yeah. like you said, have we been conditioned to use that answer to help people understand the nature of God.
1: Yeah, and, and this is where it's like a discovery process for all of us to to realize, no, these answers are here. And and one, we don't always have to accept the premise of other people's questions, but even if we do, we can we can give truth. And and you know, when we talked last time, Mike, we were talking about this fall of man and how there's some important information given in the Book of Mormon. Uh, we were reading from the second book of Nephi, chapter one, and Lehi's addressing his children. In, in this dialogue, and, and he's talking about how in around the verse 95 and onward, <clears throat> he talks about the fact that God created the heaven and the earth and everything. And he says all things that in them is. And we mentioned that this was because, hey, to the Hebrew mind, all these things were one. And he said, the things that act, the things that are acted upon to bring about et- his eternal purpose as a man. Well, this isn't just an intro to the important things. This is important that we, we see this from the beginning. A truth the Book of Mormon teaches that everything was created to be a whole. And notice in verse 97, he says, all things which are created, it must needs be there was an opposition and so from the beginning, he shows the unity of God, the balance of God, you know, justice and mercy. These are ideas that come out in this balance. But but just from the beginning, the Book of Mormon authors established this and they they established an important truth uh, that, you know, and this was news to me, the, real, the realization that, hey, this wasn't just like God created this utopia that all of a sudden when Satan did something bad, it it messed it up and now everything was on the wrong track and now we didn't know what to do because Satan did this. No, it's it's bigger than this. It's like God created man, woman in his image, as the scriptures say, which in the Hebrew meant in his character. And he put us in the middle of a world that is a balance of good and evil. It's a, it's an opposition. And if we're going to take on the character of God, we learn how to navigate
0: through choices and making decisions that will take us towards the good. Right. And he says there's a great dialogue that says, Adam was that men might be, mm-hmm. and men are that they might find joy. And so when bad things happen to good people, these bad things in this bad sinful world that we live in somehow also allows us to find true joy as we navigate through that and learn the source of life and how to trust that source as being the ultimate way to live. And that when you leave that source, bad things do happen to good people, bad things, the world does fall. The world does become this, this sinful garden of thorns, you know, that, 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 quench out the beautiful rose and the beautiful uh parts of god's creation Mm -hmm. so to speak and that's that's the opposition in all things and 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 our time here is to prepare to meet that source of of all goodness and that that way of living we're to prepare to meet him and we have so many uh truths um and as we've pointed out corey The audience from the Book of Mormon was a little different, was quite a bit different than the audience of the New Testament in the Bible across the water, that these were people that were the more righteous, that were led away and that were accepting of Jesus and knew that he was coming long before he came and there was no confusion that he was their God. Yes. So we kind of ended with that, the fall and uh, the opposition, and we were going to pick up... You have a document, and we have the links we've been providing uh, on RestoreGospel.com, written some time ago from you. And, um, of course, as you said, even your your way of thinking changes week to week, not even year to year. And mm-hmm. so the message that, that maybe was taught, um, maybe you've got more understanding, I know, today. But I think we were going to start with Enoch and Zion. As far as talking mm-hmm. about what was restored in the restoration, mm-hmm. there well, was this— there was one
1: piece of it that we didn't cover and that okay. was in the in the end of this where it was simply you know we talked about the fall of man but there was this idea of understanding the fall of Satan okay. and I wanted sure. to say something about that simply this that when and it's again through the the beautiful nature of the book of Mormon when when ne- Lehi is concluding this conversation he says in verse 100 of 2 Nephi said man could not act for himself save it should be that he was enticed one by the other. And it says in verse 99, the Lord gave unto man that he should act for himself. So, so early on, God establishes this opposition. He says man should act for himself, and he couldn't act for himself unless he was enticed one by the other. Well, so this acting for himself is established as this word we use now as agency. But it's interesting that it's brought out because this concept is never brought out in the Bible, but yet it is the essence of this. And so Satan's goal is to act 180 degrees to this because Satan's goal, it says, is to destroy the agency of man. And so this whole idea that the man fell, but that was because of our choice, Satan also wants to destroy our ability to choose, and that's to entice us to sin. This joy you speak of, which is Scripture says man was created to have joy, it's also concluded where it says full joy is never known till we're inseparably connected back with God in an immortal body and having all sin removed. That's what Satan wants to destroy. It'll be our choices to choose God, to choose a broken heart and a contrite spirit, to choose to repent, to choose his ways over the ways of the flesh. Those are all those choices where in verse 99 it says that we should act for ourselves. Those choices are the things that allow God's mercy to be applied. Otherwise, God's justice is applied. And if that's the case, it's one or the other, then that's how Satan destroys our, 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 our life and our ability. So he sought, it says in verse 103, he sought that, the misery of all mankind, and and you know, he through his lies, through his uh, temptations, but
0: simply to get us to uh, to destroy our ability to choose the good things. You know, just a little side note because I, I rarely have much of the theology to add, <laughs> but I did. I was studying section seventy six one time, and I wondered about the phrase "son of the morning." Mm. And I'm like, why did they call him that? And I did a little bit of study on that, and I just I pulled this up. I said, why is Lucifer referred to as son of the morning? Um, because Jesus also uh, was referred to—well, let me read this. It says, in Revelations, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star why are jesus and satan called the morning star in ancient times you know way back when before all of this astronomy and telescopes and things we know about the heavens it says in ancient times the idea of a morning star was just one of a bright star that outshines the others in isaiah the poetic structure in chapter 14 uses the phrase to describe the greatness of satan prior to his fall in contrast with his evil in the rebelling against God and in Isaiah 14 you can read how you all how you are fallen from heaven o day star son of dawn and in later text it says lucifer son of the morning in place of day star or son of dawn oh how you are fallen from heaven um so that yeah. son of the morning was was to describe a star that was greater than all of the other stars around it. Mm-hmm. And so there's that opposition of Jesus, this great and shining star, and also Satan who then fell, you know, fell down. And um, right. I just thought that was a, it's an interesting side note. Um, Satan's also described as a roaring lion who seeks to desire to devour believers. Jesus mm-hmm. is described as the lion of Judah who will mm-hmm. come and, destroy all the enemies so mm-hmm. there's another uh, opposition or, or two two uh, different ways of using that mm-hmm. same imagery
1: um, you know, Isaiah adds some interesting imagery I think it's Isaiah 13 where it talks about when Satan is finally uh, you know captured and, and put away and it says and and the people will come and it calls him a man and look upon this man narrowly and say is this the man that caused the nations to fall? You know, that that this is the guy who did all this, caused all this trouble. Yeah. But you know, he his purpose is to, you know, obviously keep us from God's God's plan for us. But there's this interesting aspect, I think, of all these scriptures that um to me comes out most clearly through the Book of Mormon in this whole idea of salvation, which is lost in some of today's language of, of Christianity. Uh, to put it back into something I mentioned in a recent podcast too, watching some street preachers Basically tell people come come right now, come here and be saved, and you know, I'll help you be saved. And I don't know if it was they were going to read the sinner's prayer or just pray over them or whatever. But but it not only did it bypass the the change of heart required, but there was also this element. They they said, Hey, if you don't do this, God can't forgive you, and and then Satan's gonna have you. And it's like that's a common message that, hey, if you don't do this, God can't forgive you. That's that's part of the lie that the restoration kind of brings uh, clarity to that it isn't an issue that, hey, God God can't forgive you somehow because God can forgive everyone. The point comes back to having sin removed and, and whether our sin is removed, then we can be in his presence. And I mean, God can forgive and will forgive all humanity. He could even forgive Satan, I'm sure, for this. But the point is, is your sin removed? And the sin being removed... Happens when we have the change of heart, and there's a there's a difference. So, you know, Satan's fall and all this wasn't that God couldn't forgive Satan or couldn't forgive people. Uh, you know, it makes him sound kind of fickle if if salvation is left to that. But but the idea that uh, you know this one who fell from his presence and and us who fell from his presence, we're all in the same boat in that we've got sin and it needs to be removed. That through the atonement, it's the only thing that satisfies but it comes back to our choice do we want to choose to change or not and if we do then the change begins to take place and and so satan doesn't want to choose so he, he doesn't want that his point is to destroy our agency uh you know the angels who fell with him in heaven maybe that's their position too
0: and that was a that's a big thing that specifically the what does the what has been restored in the restoration it was satan's desire to to destroy the agency of of man and forcing everyone to worship God, and I don't know that that's as clearly pointed out in mm-hmm. the um, King James version mm-hmm. of the Bible as much as it is in the in the what, that's what you've got listed on your document here. Mm-hmm. So that's I'm trusting that that was a, a added understanding of the agency. Yeah, that's, um, I think, I but think the Book of Mormon speaks to that too. In, in in that dialogue, we've already mentioned the opposition in all things that joy comes through choosing Christ, and that's part of the great the great plan that's so easily laid out that you may not find in, in the Bible so specifically knitted together, you know, plainly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So,
1: yeah, I mean, there's a lot we could say about Satan, but I kind of like to not say that much about Satan. We just know that the plan there was to to be contrary to God. But, uh, but, but again, I think the larger picture in all this is that nothing Satan did was like uh, not part of the plan in the sense that, The opposition has been there, and I imagine if it's here now, it sort of implies that it's always going to be there for eternity, too, in a sense. And I'm not saying, hey, we can fall from eternity. I just mean that in God's larger design of creation, that there's a balance in everything, that somehow in the eternal world, who knows what this even means. I'm just saying that he's... always for eternity going to continue to be one we're going to experience a fullness of joy inseparably connected we're not going to fall to sin again i don't i don't mean that at all i just think we're going to experience the the larger idea of his unity his his power and everything
0: so moving on then to understanding of enoch and zion's history and its prophesied return that is a that is a huge Restoration of understanding and truth, understanding Enoch and Zion. Of course, that is huge in the restoration. Um, You don't have a lot underneath that, Corey, but talk to that. Talk to that, uh, this man, Enoch, that's mentioned in the King James Version of the Bible in Hebrews, I believe. But and it may even say he was taken up or, or he left. But it says it walked with God. He walked right? with and, God. And then but, later it says Zion fled. Yeah. But we don't have all of
1: the filling. so speak to that. Well, and that's and interesting because you say we don't have all the fill because um there's there's a lot of records on Enoch oh, yeah. that that aren't in the Bible even. You know, it's not like uh uh, there, there's one thing, and if you go to Restore Gospel, I, I know we talked about this in an earlier episode, this uh, Kebra Nagas mm-hmm. document that was found. If you go to Restore Gospel website, uh, restoregospel.com, you can see in the upper right corner a link that's still there presently, and it'll show you that. In Ethiopia, you know, hundreds of years ago, this document was written. It's held by Christians there to be a spiritual document. Describes in the very similar language to the inspired version, Enoch City and coming back and Zion and everything. It's like, you know, where did this come from? Because this is like, this is what Joseph Smith wrote. And and we're pretty certain that uh, not very many Ethiopian documents were in Palmyra, New York's library in the 1830s. But um, so this, uh, what's, there's, I wanna say this but I wanna qualify it. What's interesting is that the most of the information we get from Enoch comes from words that Joseph Smith felt inspired to put either back in the inspired version and in, in the book of Genesis, or it comes from the Doctrine and Covenant, some of the same language. Um, it's not from E- the word Enoch doesn't appear in the Book of Mormon, and I'm not saying that it doesn't mean that it's not true. I'm, I'm saying that it's interesting where you get the sources from. came from inspiration and understanding. We don't get a lot of explanation into how Joseph Smith came about this information, which is even more fascinating when you look at this Ethiopian document and find, man, this language is very similar. He he, he had a real revelatory process, or he was just a really good guesser. He, <laughs> You're you right. Know. But, so that's fascinating to me. But what I will say about the Book of Mormon is it talks about it talks about the power of heaven coming down and and it talks about heaven and earth being one again and it talks about you know when god's kingdom is established on earth and without using Enoch's name the book of mormon has a lot to say about that kind of future condition when it, when it when it happens so so we learn about it and the, the reason i'm sharing this is because we learn about certain things that use the name Enoch from the Bible and from the Doctrine and Covenants, but we learn quite a bit still, and some of it comes from Ether's records about this time when there will be peace on earth again, and the loved ones return. And you know, Enoch City is a, is a piece of this. But everyone in heaven who is abiding that paradise comes back alive in a in a body and lives on the earth again. You know, you know, the apostles who were with Jesus and, and, and people, and it's like. You know, it's a big, huge celebration for a thousand years of the people who overcame. Uh, you know, and so, so Enoch City. Uh, what we have come to believe through the inspired version—I'll qualify this from the inspired version. You know, we believe that Enoch was a man of righteousness, and he lived three hundred sixty-five years or so on the earth. Um, at some point in time, he seemed to be so righteous, and he lived in a time when people there was a lot of wickedness. Um, around him, this was a pre-pre flood um, time. But his city and and people became righteous, and we believe that that entire people were, we say, taken up to heaven. Now, how do, what does that mean? We don't know. Translated, spiritually changed. You know, like uh, you have the Elijah story. You know, the chariots of fire. You know, mm-hmm. going up. It was was it like that? It very well may have been. You know, did it literally mean the buildings and everything were uprooted? We can only conjecture you know things like that cause us to kind of wonder and fascination but we don't we don't really know what that means but the fact in a in a more of a oh greater sense is that that righteousness at one point in time abounded in in God's perfect love among people on the earth. And they did something that we don't know of too many generations who have done that since then. Maybe at the time of Nephites after Jesus was with them, for instance, they had this kind of utopian lifestyle. But but there's this promise that those people who live then come back and and that this city that they established um, becomes part of this growing um combination of heaven's power and earth's power of the righteous converted people coming together where there's a, there's a spiritual force from heaven. There's a spiritual force on earth and there's miraculous things where people who had, who had passed on years ago are even resurrected and continue the fight in the, in the end times until the day when, when, when the Lord comes. Now, I think in this, I could be wrong about this, uh, cause I'm wrong a lot about about a lot of things, but I think that it's, It's prophesied in like third Nephi chapter 10 when Jesus says, Hey, there's gonna be a city established, and it's gonna be the city unto Joseph here in the Americas first, and the power of heaven will be with you. I think that's talking about what we commonly call, hey, we're gonna build up Zion. And then later, I think it's at Jesus' return in glory. I think that's when Enoch City itself comes back. But but we we've believed through scripture, and the Book of Mormon is help what helps tie all this together is that there's a there's a, there's a a change of heart among people in the covenants of the last days where, call them Lamanites and Gentiles and Jews, there's a mix of people. Third Nephi chapter 10 in the RLDS Book of Mormon talks about <clears throat> these repentant people who come together and build a city, and it says the power of heaven will be among you. And Jesus says, I will be in your midst. And from there, that's when the work goes forth to... Preach the gospel to the remnants and to the lost people and the Jews, and and they start hearing this pure testimony of of Christ, and and the world ends up becoming this two churches, one or the other. To me, that's not Enix City returning yet. I mm-hmm. think Enix City returns really to usher in what is the millennium when when um, you know I, 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 we we only have sketchy. Peace, well, I don't mean sketchy in a, in a bad sense. I, we only have some general descriptions of events that happened from that time. Uh, Nephi shares some of them in his vision. He he sees uh, the saints armed with righteousness, and he sees the condition of two churches in the world. We we see somehow the saints overcome that evil church, even though they're smaller in number. All those events lead up to when the Lord returns in his glory and ushers in the millennium. But I believe it's in that moment when, when we read this scripture from Genesis 9, that, hey, they will fall upon our necks, we'll fall upon their necks. And, and this is the the timer, if you will, that that begins the thousand-year space of the millennium when those people, that when heaven actually comes back and, and the whole world sees it. I, I think that's when Enoch City actually returns.
0: Yeah, the Book of Mormon definitely um, paints a picture in multiple places of a place of righteousness, a city, um, a holy place of gathering on this continent, the Americas, uh, as well as we believe the Jews uh, being gathered back to Jerusalem and right. Israel. So, what was restored? Well, a knowledge of what's going to take place on this land, um, mirroring you know what's taking place in Israel. That Israel is not the only uh, going to be the only holy dwelling place of God, but also there's going to be a righteous place here. And we believe starting at Independence, Missouri, you know, uh, was a dedicated a place for the temple to be built. And um, and so we'll see how that plays out. But I also believe the Book of Mormon does clarify timelines a little bit that shows that, yes, in fact, Jesus will be come down and be among us and lead us. And then the work of the gathering will commence mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, the flip side of what you said is, is also something I think people in the restoration need to remember is that Zion is not just the gathering in America. It's also the old Jerusalem being built up again. And he pointed mm-hmm. this out that the Jews or people of Israel look to being regathered to Israel because that's the, the portion of scripture they have um, doesn't clearly describe what we believe is the gathering in America. Although where it talks about Zion and Jerusalem. I, I believe that is the reference to, to both of those. But nevertheless, sometimes in the restoration, we look at it as, hey, there's just this gathering here in America. You better come here. And sometimes, and I can't speak for everyone, but I just know that whether we don't talk about it as much, the, the gathering to the old land of the inheritance of Jerusalem is going to happen too. There's going to be two two major places where people gather. And so that's an important part of this process that happens even before Enoch City uh that that idea returns but but uh the idea that it does return but that it reflects the fact that there are certain things that have to happen and it's important I think that we realize we in the restoration have sometimes been a little short-sighted in that it's kind of like we just want to jump to the end of the story and, and we're like hey well when Zion gets here you know, X, Y, Z, all good things, everything's going to happen. All these problems of our lives are resolved. Yeah, that's all true. But the beautiful thing about the Book of Mormon is it helps fills in some of the details between then and now to understand that there are a lot of covenants that have to be fulfilled. And, uh, you know, some many, many, many podcasts ago, I think we talked about this, but it bears repeating that uh, J.J. Cornish once was asked, Hey, well, when is Zion going to happen? Because back in the nineteen uh, twenties. Someone at a conference stood up and said, "A world conference. Hey, if if the Lord, if the Zion isn't here by 1925, this whole thing is a fizzle." I think that was his words right. that were used. And you know, here it's been a hundred years since those words were uttered. I think it was 1917 when or 1918 that time frame. And so, what the reason I share that is because JJ says something really important in his writing in this, and he says, "Hey, Zion is going to come." If you're referring to Enoch City returning or the, or the gathering in the United States or Israel, pick, pick whichever one. But it's only going to happen when the covenants concerning it are fulfilled. And that's the point is that there are covenants and promises made to people and places that have been in Scripture since the beginning. And those all have their place in time. And it isn't until those covenants are fulfilled that heaven and earth dwell together. It's kind of the perfect chiasm. If you consider that in the beginning of time, God walked with man, You know, maybe it was just Adam and Eve, but God's presence was on earth, and then we were separated from God, and then all this timeline of our lives and history has been unfolding. But in the end, it all comes to closure again when God, God and man dwell together again. And and that's the ultimate when heaven comes back to earth. God our hearts have changed, you know, he's in our midst and everything. But this reuniting of God and man and the earth is like a garden, right? Just like the Garden of Eden. That's all this stuff kind of converges again in the end. So the the very last thing to happen of all this covenant process is to me, I think Enoch City returning. That's the end of that's kind of the end zone, if you will, and that ushers in the millennium. There are many good things that are going to happen before then. The Enoch the, the I'm sorry, the the Zion of the United States, the gathering and the Old Jerusalem becoming a holy city again, and the two churches and the um, the gospel going out to the world. All these things are things that are happening in part of that process. But the 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 part that's restored in our knowledge of the restoration is that. Heaven and earth come together again, and and that's typified by
0: Enoch City coming back. Yeah, and no no rapture. There's very clearly not even...
1: Well that's a good point. I'm glad you bring that up. That I mean not to dwell on that much, but you know we, we have to be careful because you hear this word and most evangelicals kind of hold to some form of of rapture, but the the Book of Mormon and, and and by rapture there's sort of two thoughts. Let me let me go there for just a second. Uh if if you talk to people who believe it, they talk about a premillennial or postmillennial or or post no pre-tribulation or post-tribulation. That's right. what it is. And so Where the confusion is there, uh, just I won't get into it, but they they take some scriptures that were actually prophesying to Jews about their condition and they've um, extrapolated it to the whole world. And they say, oh, this is the end of the world. And and so we're either going to be taken out of this world as Christians before all the bad things and then the world suffers with a whole bunch of bad things. That's one of the ideas. That's this pre-tribulation idea. And it's totally contrary to even the Bible. The, the Bible doesn't say that. They take a couple of scriptures out of context. The Book of Mormon for sure guarantees that, no, the good people stay on earth all the time until the Lord comes. It's being caught up in the cloud. It says, hey, when I come, when I descend with Enoch City and all these people, he said the good people of the earth are caught up in the cloud. That's the transfiguration, those people who have uh, changed and you know because their hearts were changed, they came into the covenant, you know, through their baptism and, and through taking on the name of Christ. We have this promise of being changed to be like them. And when Jesus comes, that's what he says, hey they're taken up in the cloud, changed in the twinkling of an eye. And and this life begins. But there are people who are also on the earth who are not fully changed. Maybe their hearts haven't changed, but those are the ones who Abinadi writes and Joseph Smith writes this in section seventy six. These are the ones whose hearts maybe were blinded by the craftiness of men, right? But they were still good people. They live on the earth too. Their their change is coming, but it's all it's all in the process of the millennium. Mm-hmm. And so, we're, we're, the reason I share that though is again just to kind of restate it. This um, rapture idea is put forth from some people. A lady had a dream in the eighteen hundreds, and and from that dream, her name was Mary something. She um she started this thought, school of thought that, oh well, the good people are taking the earth off the earth. And and so anyhow, it's there's a lot of scriptures that talk about it. If you want to go to restore gospel, I think there's a page there that says what rapture and it goes through some of the scriptures, even in just in the Bible, that okay. point, we can point that to out. That. Right. Right. So yeah, no rapture.
0: So you've already kind of You've kind of melded together the next uh, bullet point on this document here on Restore Gospel. What was restored? Understanding of the covenants. Mm-hmm. But very specifically, um, I know the Book of Mormon restores or, or plainly points out in the restoration of God's Word um, the Gentiles' role and what happens when um, we— bring forth the words of God or the book of Mormon comes forth. And then we reject the fullness of the gospel by, by and large, which I think is no doubt America has rejected Christ and any semblance of righteousness, even as we've talked about, even to our most base instincts, we, uh, change even who we are and who we're born to be. Exactly. Um, exactly. and so, uh, when we we know that when the time of the gentiles is fulfilled the book of mormon speaks very much about then the gospel going back to the covenant people and the reason for all throughout the book of mormon as the, as the writers are writing and they they say so that the, you know that these words will be go again to our people you know in the latter days that they will have these writings and when Christ came you know he even asked them hey, where, where have you recorded all of these people that were resurrected when I came to see you? Oh, we haven't written those down yet. Write them down. So we have a purpose for uh, people to have those records later on. So all of that was restored, the covenants for, for and this is going to be important, right, to the Jews or to the tribes of Israel, especially to the house of Joseph. Um, they're going to, have a clear understanding of who they were and where they came from, and that Jesus was their God.
1: Yeah, that's the title page of the Book of Mormon kind of summarizes all that. You know, it's the, the purposes are to hey, let the world know that Jesus is is the God, the Savior, and that that we're not forgotten in the covenants, the the Jews, the lost tribes, uh, or the Gentiles. And it's a it's a message to all of us. So no, yeah, that's a great. Summary. We've touched we've, we've touched on that so much. Yeah, I don't know that we need to go into the details of it right now. No,
0: just just uh a very far out view of what was restored. So understanding of the covenants, very clearly the next bullet point says, and boy, I love these episodes that we did understanding the purpose of the law of Moses and that it pointed towards Christ and was fulfilled. Um, The book of Mormon. Oh my goodness. So as we've said many times, this was a righteous and more righteous people. The audience was different. There wasn't, all of the time and energy spent having to convince them that they had to give up the law of Moses, they understood this was all pointing to Christ. And so it gives us such a clear picture of the purpose of the law of Moses and how that was fulfilled in Christ. I mean, Amen. I don't, I don't yeah. know if there's anything else you want to add to that. Um, no,
1: but I, I think that, so if you want to understand the New Testament... Um, just you can do this in either the inspired version or the King James, but search the words "the law" two two words, and and find how many times that's mentioned. And I can pretty much tell you about ninety eight percent of the time, it's talking about the law of Moses. Moses. And and when you see how frequent that's used by Paul and the writers of the New Testament, you 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 learn something important that. The issue of the day, the biggest issue of the day, was, was not even realizing that Jesus died on the cross. I mean, it, it was, but it was realizing that that whole law they had practiced for 1,500 years all pointed towards that. You know, they, they may have heard about Jesus, but they hadn't made the connection that all those sacrifices and all those little rules and all these things had their place in preparing the hearts and minds for this ultimate eternal sacrifice. And for... For most of them, they missed it. So Paul's spending most of the New Testament explaining it to them. Sometimes the language is a little ambiguous in the New Testament. But if you go and search the words, the law, in the Book of Mormon, same words, then you get it with such clarity that these people who had this beautiful testimony of Jesus now understood that this law that they were also living under all pointed towards him, the eternal sacrifice for all mankind, and that the law was just kind of this dumb, silly thing. I mean, those were almost their words. They said, the the law hath become dead unto us. Nephi writes this. He said, because we're alive in Christ. I mean, that's a beautiful Hebrew parallel right there. But he, he you know, contrasting the law to Christ and alive and dead and all this stuff. Uh, I, I'm just enjoying that as my hobby these days, finding these little subtle parallels in the Book of Mormon. But nevertheless, this point is read it in the Book of Mormon, understand the law of Moses, what it pointed towards there, and then when you come back and read the New Testament, it, it becomes much clearer to understand because most of it was talking about this very thing, that the law of Moses was fulfilled.
0: And that, that ties into the next point, understanding the significance of the sacrifices um, before and during the law of Moses, that they all uh, pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice of Christ yeah and
1: I was gonna add you know someone else used this word uh, but I'm gonna borrow it I think it was uh, Jonathan Kahn uh, the book of Leviticus for instance in the in the Old Testament
0: mm-hmm.
1: is where you get all the rules it's kind of if you will the priesthood manual of the Old Testament for the rabbis who had to carry out or the priests who had to carry out all the sacrifices you know what kind of animal you had to bring how it had to be cut up or burned or offered or whatever and and he said, Something that was interesting that the law of Moses, well, rather the book of Leviticus, was like a prism. You remember from science class in elementary school where you had the little triangle glass. Oh yeah, and you shoot the white light <laughs> through it, and it comes out in all these colors. Right. Well, it said the law of Moses was like it. What it tried to do was show as the colors of the white light expand in all these multicolors. Uh it was like a prism of jesus sacrifice there was so much that jesus sacrifice did i mean it was it was a it brought peace so there were peace offerings it brought atonement so there was an atonement it brought forgiveness of sin and and it did all these things and and all these crazy things that just seemed kind of weird all had their perfect metaphorical understanding if you will uh, through, through the old law to, to point towards Jesus. So the significance of the sacrifices, again, um, the, it's interesting because what the Bible does that the Book of Mormon doesn't do is the Bible goes and it explains in chapters through the Mosaic Law what all the different sacrifices were, how they had to be carried out. And in the Book of Mormon, you get none of that. Right, because the people realized this all points to Christ. We, it, they, I'm sure they had it in the records recorded elsewhere because oh, yeah, they had right. to keep it. But Nephi realized, I'm not going to waste one inch of my plates tapping in what all these sacrifices and things were because we realized the ultimate
0: sacrifice was Jesus. Right, and they had they had probably all of those uh, on the plates that they brought with them. But yeah, they all they pointed so much towards Jesus being that last sacrifice, and we just don't. I say we don't have the luxury, we don't have the understanding of what it meant for a group of people to have their entire religion turned upside down and done away with, and everything that they thought life was about uh, just pulled out from under them, and realizing that these laws that you were doing, you no longer do. You know, And all through the New Testament, as the Gentiles come to know Jesus and come to know the gospel— Even among the righteous Jews, we see over and over again, they have a hard time letting go of the Mosaic law, you know? And, well, you need to be circumcised. No, no, you have to have your heart circumcised, you know? That was all pointing towards your your change of heart. And so there's a lot of energy in the New Testament even showing the Jews that there's one God and that Jesus was the final sacrifice and and that they don't have to continually— fight over whether the Gentiles are keeping the law or that they even need to still do some of these things that they need to, to give up. So uh, all of that restored very clearly in the book of Mormon. Yeah.
1: I was going to say too, in the new Testament, what you find is interesting. If you, if you search those words, the law and you find some books, it's full of it, like um, Hebrews, Galatians. Well, that's one. Paul or others were, were talking to Jews who were trying to get this idea of what the the law was over and Jesus was what it pointed towards, but there are times when they're speaking to Gentiles and people who didn't live under this law, and you never see the law mentioned, and that should be telling because it, it, it kind of just reiterates everything you just said, Mike. Is this idea that there were some people they didn't need it they because they were just finding about Christ you know alive so they didn't have to go through all this old old understanding of what the law pointed towards they were never under it they were just saying hey i'm alive in christ and that's ultimately what god wants us to know and understand now we're blessed to have this framework of history to understand what it was like then and to be thankful that I mean, I can't imagine what life was like, but people did this for over 1,500 years, you know, always having to kill animals when you go to church, you know, things like that. Right. You know.
0: Just tedious. It's just tedious. took up their entire day combined with the fact that there was no washing machines and <laughs> no running water. <laughs> was, yeah, you know, exactly. Not only did they have to do that, they just, just. Tedious, and then all of the other laws that were added, all of that, the sundry laws that were added to that. So.
1: Yeah, and you know, and the sad thing for today is that, and this will change. This is part of the beauty of the covenants being fulfilled, is that um, there are still it's Jews specifically, but just like in, in Christianity, you have a whole spectrum of kind of very conservative to very kind of not so conservative, and we're all under this umbrella of Christianity. Uh, the same is. True under, under Jewry, this idea of the, you're a, of the house of Judah and you're a Jew, you know, you have some people who you wouldn't necessarily know it by the way they live or act, but they're Jewish by their heritage, but they're not necessarily practicing Orthodox. But at the same time, and this is where I want to go with this, there are some people who still, other than killing animals, although they might still kill a lamb on the Passover and everything, um, feel like all these laws are supposed to be kept. Still. Right. And that's even true in some Gentiles, but even in our groups, there are people who who think somehow maybe we should be keeping these laws, and maybe we're supposed to be doing this stuff again.
0: And I don't, I don't have a problem with you know Gentiles wanting to have a Passover meal. no, no. no, and, no. And, and, it, it, but realizing that it is doing absolutely nothing for your soul, other than maybe it's. Uh, maybe it's helping you remember Christ. Maybe it's a way for you to show that you understand and that you want to do that, and that's and, absolutely And you fine. appreciate and it's, that. It's pretty neat. It's a, it's a teaching tool. It's a way to teach your kids all good things, but, but we certainly can't worship those things as a way of righteousness.
1: No, we can't. And so the, the, to the extreme, and, and the extreme people, even among the certain Jews, and unfortunately under certain Christians. You mean Christ Gentiles? People, or, or Jew, Jews. Jews. And, but, but there are some who believe that, The temple in Jerusalem has to be rebuilt Rebuilt. so they can start doing blood sacrifices again. And see, this is totally missing the whole point. Jesus was what all the sacrifices pointed towards. When he was killed on the cross, the Book of Mormon says this so clearly. He says, I will accept none of your sacrifices anymore. And it clearly states, hey, they didn't practice the laws of uh, of Moses anymore. It was done. The
0: temple even the being rent, the veil being rent in the temple, one final, yep. no, no more barrier, no more need for no, the temple.
1: Exactly not, exactly. not
0: for that reason.
1: Correct, correct. And so there's this idea among some, among the Orthodox, that um, you know, the temple has to be rebuilt because we, in order to satisfy God, have to start doing all these uh, lamb, dove, ox, whatever sacrifice there was, again, to, to make God happy. And it's so missing the point. And, and it's it's sad that certain Jews hold to that because, but the scripture says, hey, their mind is blinded. In Second Corinthians, it says there's a veil over their hearts, but when they come to Jesus, that veil will be removed. And the veil is on understanding the Old Testament. In other words, it's understanding Moses. It says when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. But when the They come to Christ, that veil is removed. In other words, they don't realize until they come to Christ, oh, all this stuff pointed towards Jesus. We don't have to keep this anymore. When there's a temple built in Jerusalem again, it'll be because the people's hearts have changed to Jesus, and it's not going to be something where people are sacrificing the animals again. Don't fall for that lie. That is such a lie, and it's out there. It's unfortunate. It's even in some conservative restoration groups that somehow think that's going to happen.
0: Well, you know, I hope that... um we, we don't know, but if and when a temple is built in Jerusalem again, I hope that they, if not when they're building it, shortly thereafter realize this is being built uh, because Christ is, is going to be coming back. And we, as far as the restoration, what was restored, what a message we have to bring to the Jews and the house of Israel so plainly laid out in the Book of Mormon that Christ was that last sacrifice, and that I hope when they come and are able to read the Book of Mormon, they see it as a Hebrew book, as a as a book written by their forefathers, and recognize that it helps them to recognize that that Jesus is their God, and that He wasn't, um, you know, He wasn't a blasphemous person calling Himself God; that He was their God.
1: Amen. That's that's it right there. It's it's going to be the thing. I believe the Book of Mormon is going to be the thing that changes their hearts and their convincing, understanding,
0: mm-hmm. convincing the Jew and the Gentile. Jesus mm-hmm. is a Christ. Um, so uh, let's just wrap up. We we yeah. we're, we're almost out of time. Do you want to go into baptism because the Book of Mormon restores very plainly the purpose of baptism, who's baptized, you know, by how mm-hmm. all of that. So that there's no disputations. Can we do that in five minutes or so, do you think? Or yeah, do you want to save that till next time? No,
1: I think we should just kind of wrap this part of it up. I mean, we're always talking about these subjects anyhow. But I think that uh, one thing a friend pointed out recently, there's a scripture in the, in the Book of Mormon that says, hey, they weren't baptized unless they brought forth fruit, Fruits. meat for repentance. And isn't that interesting? I was going to bring up the scripture. Bring it up. that up. The,
0: the other scripture that I always think of in my mind as to why we, we say well, you, we don't give communion, but only to those that were baptized is because it also says very plainly that the first fruit of repentance, the very first fruit of repentance is baptism. Mm-hmm. And so if you truly want to turn from your carnal ways and follow God with all of your heart, the first thing you need to do is be baptized that's that's the first fruit and so if you haven't done that first fruit of repentance then we for your own sake you shouldn't be taking the sacrament saying you're willing to remember him always because you haven't done that first step of repentance and yeah. that's where the gentile the evangel the gentile evangelicals the the evangelical protestant world Really has gone the way of, not all of them, some of them baptized, but they don't see it as necessary. It's something you can do or want to do, but some of them think it's necessary. But most of them see it as a work and that you're not saved by baptism, you're saved by Christ, which is true, but you're saved by being obedient and believing in Christ. And how can you say you do that if you don't follow this commandment that he gave to be baptized,
1: yeah, it's 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 our it's our marriage covenant, if you will, in, in a sense, yeah. something he asked. But but it's the change of heart where it all has to happen, just like you said. Well, We're,
0: baptism does nothing, right? Nothing for you if you haven't if you haven't come to him in your heart and said, "This is my desire to follow you."
1: Yeah, and so sometimes that change of heart happens later. Again, we we always go back to Alma's story, and I imagine he was baptized as a child but then he became a destroyer of the church, you know, and and then he has this change of heart and then he's spending the rest of his life, you know, trying to fix up all the things he was undoing before. But so when that change of heart happens, it's coupled with the covenant, but we know that making a covenant is something that Jesus commands. When in the Bible says, Hey, Jesus was baptized to show the narrowness of the way. In other words, this is, this is just part of the process, but What's interesting to me, and this is what a friend asked the other day, uh, in Moroni chapter 6, verse 2, um, it says, Behold, elders, priests, teachers were baptized. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't say, hey, people were baptized, then later they were ordained to elders, priests, and teachers. And maybe there's not a point to be made there, but it's just interesting the language of it. But but in other words, I think what it's saying is people who were served, who, who wanted to serve or were served, they were baptized, but... This is the point I wanted to make, but they were not baptized, save they brought forth fruit, meat that they were worthy of it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that we don't seem to. It's it's almost like there was scrutiny that no, are you really sincere about this? We're just anxious. We're just happy that someone says, "Hey, I want to be baptized," you know. And then it's kind of like, okay, now that you're baptized, we'll just sink or swim. You know, it's kind of on your own. But it says neither did they receive any into baptism, save they came forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and witnessed unto the church that they truly repented of all their sins. And that's an interesting thing. We don't do this, but I, I had the honor of baptizing someone once who, who, before baptism wanted to tell everyone my life's been changed, you know, yeah. just a, it's important. What
0: and, a beautiful testimony to add to the service. But, if you're not eight, most of our baptisms, sadly enough, are just eight year old by, by inheritance. That's what they do. But, but yeah, when people are hearing the story and then, and they're older and they, they want to change their life and be baptized. Yeah. Beautiful to have them share their testimony.
1: And, and I guess what I think about that, Mike, is that I think we, we see that as the uh, anomaly and it's like, maybe that's actually supposed to be how it is that, you know, not that, well, I don't know. I don't know how you carry it out. But the idea is definitely here that bringing forth fruit, meat, that they were worthy, that they had really been changed. And so the following verse is equally interesting to me. I don't know that I have a lot of answers, but but it says, And none were received unto baptism, save they took upon them the name of Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end. As if they took on the name of Christ before they were baptized, they had to show fruit, meat, forth for repentance. And, you know, I, I don't know another I,
0: way. It could just be another way of stating um, that they were bringing forth that fruit. Yes. Yeah, they've taken upon the name of Christ. They're yes. doing what he wants.
1: Yes. And I think, I think that's probably the, the best way to look at it. And I don't I, even
0: want to go into No, no. Work.
1: I, cause I, I don't want to, I don't want to even suggest that there's something there that isn't that, you know, Hey, we're missing this. No, I, I think you're right. It, it all just is part of that fruit process, but that, this comes back to the essence of what it really means to have a changed heart. Right. When, when people are baptized, that it's because their heart has changed. It's not like the preacher on the street who's just saying, Hey, come here right now and you can be saved, you know?
0: Well, what what else does the Book of Mormon say about baptism? It's very plain that it says, and after you've done this, is this all that you need to do? No, you have just merely entered in mm. by the gate. And then we have a beautiful a word picture of what a believer then needs to do after being baptized. I don't know if you Man. want to read that scripture. That's Is that in Mosiah or is that in...
1: You know, I, I got to throw this one out, though. It's just in the... this is You know, we had this conversation before about scriptures in the Book of Mormon that plainly talk about we're only saved because of the grace of God, but yet because they get taken out of context, people say, oh, well, you're saved after all you can do. You know, that kind of implies... This is one that goes along, that slams in the face of any anything to the contrary. Verse 5, Moroni 6, "...their names were taken that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful under prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and finisher of their faith." Isn't that something, relying, relying alone, alone on the merits of Christ... And that to me is just like, oh my gosh, it's only because of him, you know? It doesn't say, hey, relying on everything you can do and then seeing if Jesus kicks in a little at the end. No, it's relying alone on the merits of Christ.
0: Um, Where is that uh, scripture, Corey? It says... uh you entered in, you know, basically you have entered in at the gate of baptism. But it's,
1: it's it's in the end of uh, Nephi's Nephi. words. I think it's like Second Nephi thirteen. Or it's like the last chapter of his writings, and then um, uh, where he's talking about this, it's a beautiful chiasm. The whole chapter is is a chiasm with you know, kind of coming to Christ in the middle. Uh, we'll bring it up here and let's let's read through that
0: because we we have the Mosiah is that Mosiah eight. There's the, um, the big chapter on baptism and, um, you know, why are you baptizing your children? This is an abomination to me. Yeah, Moroni, Moroni talks eight. about
1: But you see, you mentioned Mosiah 8, and you're actually 100% right in both. Because I love when I'm right, when I'm I know, wrong. I know. King when King, uh, King when I'm Noah, wrong, I'm right. But you're <laughs> going to say it was King Noah saying this, but he's actually saying it to King Noah. The whole thing is, Abinadi, oh. the one who brings out many, many generations before Moroni writes this, he says, and little children are alive in Christ. He's mm-hmm. pointing this out when he's talking about what it means and who's going to be saved. And
0: that's a huge restoration um, because people think they have to baptize their children or if something happens to them they're not they're not saved in the kingdom. The Book of Mormon restores that plain truth very plainly that no, you are alive in Christ and and really the restoration teaches not until you're accountable and understand right and wrong are you are you then um, accountable to make your own decision on whether to be baptized or not. But if this, if anything happens to you before then, you're saved in the kingdom of God because of Jesus.
1: Exactly. And and see this is you know, we didn't want to talk a whole lot about it, but here we go because there's so much beauty that comes forth from the Book of Mormon. You have the extreme in our world where you have some people saying baptism doesn't matter because it's a work and works don't matter. You know, you get that extreme to the other extreme, you get people baptizing their children on the day of their birth thinking, if I just don't get this done and my child dies, he's gonna to go to hell. My my one day old baby. Right. right. And so in the in both those extremes the total meaning is lost. Right. Yeah. And so this is why again, the Book of Mormon to the rescue Little children are alive in Christ. It's only for those who can repent, and 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 you get this language again through the Book of Mormon. It's for those who can repent. It's for those who can w- want the change of heart, because the the sin doesn't apply to those who die without the law, or or the little children who don't even understand it.
0: Well, so Second Nephi it's, thirteen yeah
1: twenty seven. You asked that question. Well,
0: yeah. So it says for the gate which you should enter is repentance and baptism. And we said the first, it says the first fruits of repentance is baptism by water, by water. And then cometh the remission of your sins by fire and the Holy ghost. And then you are in the straight and narrow path, which leads to eternal life. You have entered in by the gate. You have done according to the commandments of the father and his son, and you have received the Holy ghost, which witnesses of the father and the son unto the fulfilling of the promises, which he has made that if you enter in by the way you should receive. And now my beloved brethren, I love this after you've gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask, is this all done? Is this all you need to do? Behold, I say unto you no. For you have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits, as you said, of him who is mighty Mighty to to save. save. Wherefore, you must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all man.
1: That's it.
0: So we press forward, it goes on and, and on and on and on and feast upon the words of Christ and dirt the end.
1: Hey, that's like a song that you sometimes play <laughs> on, on and on. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've
0: actually I got a song about this this scripture here, so maybe we'll really? share that sometime. Maybe we'll share that here. But um
1: But you know, people calling Jesus calling baptism a work. I, I didn't want to cut you off, Mike, if you had a thought there. I just no the this same chapter says so many of these beautiful things and in the earlier verses around verse 8 9 10 it, it talks about Jesus being baptized it says hey if he was holy and he, he told us to do it he said how much more then should we being unholy be baptized even by water you know any you see this oh if a question then how much more should we that's a typical hebrew form of speech right. but the but the meaning of it here is is the the point It says, he showed us, and I like this word in verse 11, it shows to the children of men the straightness of the path, the narrowness of the gate by which we should enter, he having set the example before us. I mean, that just pushes its a work aside, right? The fact that, no, it's showing us that there's a straight path, a narrow gate to go through, and that he's the one who showed the example that, hey, if you want to find this path towards eternal life, this is the way you do it.
0: I'm, uh, I was still looking for that chapter where uh, the baptism chapter, maybe you've got it pulled up over there. Which one? Oh, the one where, um, where it talks about not baptizing your children. Okay. So Oh,
1: you mean when Mormons counsel in Moroni? Maybe. I know it's eight, but I don't know which book. Yeah. Well, again, you know, you, you contrast that with, uh, little children have eternal life, but, um, uh, just, you can word yeah. search children. Mosiah. I
0: was right. It was Mosiah. Yeah, Mosiah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: That's where he says yeah. it. But, but in the end, you know, it's an interesting historical point of this. And I know we're probably running a little short here on time, but my, I, it's, this occurred to me once. Why after all the writings of the book of Mormon, do you all of a sudden get Moroni taking, you know, counsel from his father, Mormon, who's writing to him in a letter saying, and by the way, I heard something bad's going on. You're baptizing your children, you know, and and then he explains why this isn't a good thing to do. Well, I think historically there's something interesting about this that gets maybe a little lost in the story. The Nephite civilization was left to Moroni and the few people around him by the time he's getting these letters, and I would imagine that they knew that death was imminent, and I think there was maybe even a fear among the people that these little ones hadn't been baptized and what was going to happen to them now? You know, shouldn't we baptize them just in case, just in case, because they, they, for all of them, they didn't know that they were going to be alive tomorrow. And I have a feeling that they were confronted with this question, are children going to die? What's going to happen to them? And so I think this is why it might've been timed with this, that Moroni is saying, Hey, don't, don't worry. We don't know what tomorrow holds for any of us, but the
0: whole thing is little children are alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. I remember one baptism. We had a, we had a, a number of people being baptized, and our pastor read this scripture in Mosiah nine, and he says, um, "Are you desirous to come into the fold of God and be called His people, and are you willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light?" Are you willing to mourn with those that mourn? Are you willing to comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that you may be in, even until death, that you may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection that you may have eternal life? And by the way, just a side note, there's another good way to tie in the word redeemed, lest we think Mm. that we are somewhere away from god and yet still redeemed um now i say unto you if this be the desire of your hearts what have you against being baptized in the name of the lord to witness before him that you've entered into a covenant with him that you want to serve him keep his commandments so that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you Mm -hmm. sounds really close and familiar to the communion prayer right and so I remember our pastor reading that, and and all of the, the there was like seven or eight being baptized that day, and he asked that question. and They all responded, "We do. This is the desire of our hearts." It was just neat, you That's know. Beautiful. Not that you have to do that, but but why not? You <clears throat> perfect, know? plain understanding restored on why you need to be baptized. You read this, and there's no, I mean, it's no he, ambiguity for it's people no. that want to argue. Here's here's the argument. Well, right. do you want to do these things? Well, why do you? What do you have against being baptized then? Yeah, exactly. so. Another message. Well, so this was part three, Corey, of uh, what was restored in the restoration, and we're not. Maybe we go in a little deep, but not too deep into each one. Uh, I don't know if we'll go through any more of these or not. We'll decide. But um, hopefully, that gives us just a reminder of, as the Book of Mormon says, "Make these things known unto the children of men." It's the it's the content of the restoration, not the fact that there was a restoration. So. Anything else, brother, that no, you would it's, like to add oh, to the good end? Visiting
1: uh, with you, though, it's just—it's good, buddy. Everyone, just uh, love your family, love your friends, love your neighbors, love the Lord who gave His life for us, and keep walking each other home.
0: Walking each other home. Amen. Till next time. God bless.